Good morning. It's Monday, so we'll have a new Book of the Week starting in three quarters of an hour. And the mean streets of Glasgow are the setting for Gavin Knight's efforts to understand the horrifying levels of gangland violence in that city. Before that, in half an hour, we've another of Peter White's Bet Noir. But now, Fry's English Delight. Stephen Fry on the language of persuasion. And I, for one, would really appreciate it if you could listen very carefully. Hello. Have a guess in which industry this man works. Go on. It's virtually unknown, I think, in the UK for women to buy shoes purely to protect their feet. And it's incredibly rare for men to buy cars or motorbikes purely as a form of transportation. Well, did you? Guess, I mean. Did you think or speak out loud at my request? And if so, can you say why you responded? The magic of the imperative mood, an urge to show off your knowledge, a desire to please me. I hope I can persuade you to spend the next half hour or so in my company, hearing all kinds of experts give you the lowdown on getting someone else to do what you want them to do. I'm not sure what expertise I can pretend to in this matter myself. Have you ever bought a car on my say-so, or voted in a particular way in a referendum because of my ringing endorsement, or changed your insurance company simply because my silver tongue has been employed on their behalf? No, I thought not. Although millions did, I'm told. And, of course, that man works in advertising. He is Rory Sutherland, vice-chairman of the Ogilvy Group in the UK, recent president of the IPA, Institute of Practitioners in Advertising. So, we must ask Mr Sutherland. All this money and effort and creativity and time spent on advertising, it must work, yes? Yes, it works extremely well. It works spectacularly well on occasion. What's more open to debate is how it works. Does it work through absolutely rational persuasion or does it work at a more subconscious, subliminal level? That seems to imply that some kind of sleight of hand is being operated here. To be absolutely honest, I mean, everything we do has effects at the unconscious level on other people. So to accuse us of sleight of hand is probably fair, um, but then uh, virtually all human interaction operates that way to, to a degree. I mean, the fact is, all of us communicate, all of us advertise. If you have a second-hand car that you want to sell, you'll undoubtedly polish it and clean the KFC wrappers off the back seat. You know, everybody, to some extent, is involved in that, you know, how things are presented. And we do it for ourselves, we do it personally, we do it for our families. So it's a little, you know, it, it, it's a little dubious to attack companies for doing the same thing. There are cases, and there, you know, there are patently um, applications for advertising which are simply about rational argument. And that works in many ways. It, in some cases, that's necessary and the best thing to do. But I would be disingenuous, I think, if I denied that some of the uh, effect of advertising operates at a level in which the people it affects aren't fully consciously aware of the effect. Mm. I wasn't going to bring up the old accusation of being hidden persuaders, at least not straight away, but seeing that it seems to have arisen, perhaps Rory Sutherland might care to deal with it. We are always and inevitably hidden persuaders to a degree, simply because not all influence operates at an absolutely conscious and rational level. At the same time, there are areas where you can frame arguments well, you can encourage people to look at 
conventional things in a new way, or indeed, and there's a great phrase used to define poetry, which is the job of poetry is to make new things familiar and familiar things new. And that's not a bad definition of advertising. You know, to refresh people's perception of things which have just become, uh, you know, part of the furniture, that's a valuable function of advertising. But equally, the encouragement of the adoption of new technology and new behaviours through, you know, whatever means may make that easiest. Hmm. A chiasmus from Dr. Johnson there, and notice how it was turned into an advertising slogan for advertising. But for the creative talents in advertising, it isn't just persuading people to buy the product that inspires them, is it? If you can become just part of the furniture, if you can, for example, uh, you know, turn your brand into a verb, as Google have done, or uh, you know, effectively become absolutely indelibly associated with a category... I mean, the vital thing to understand, I think, here, which is not always well understood by economists and other people, is that all value is, is actually subjective. Um, some, some interesting economists, Ludwig von Mises, for one, have made that point very assertively. Um, but there tends to be a distinction in people's mind between the value you create by making something and the perceptual value, the intangible value, that then attaches to that thing. It's actually a very dangerous distinction. And what Ludwig von Mises says, which I think is a very useful exercise, he said, if you run a restaurant, you can't make a distinction between the value you create by cooking the food and the value you create by sweeping the floor. That the context in which the good is consumed actually massively affects the value we attach to it, the enjoyment we derive from it, and the price we're prepared to pay. But nearly everything we buy is a mixture of what you might call actual value, utility in the conventional sense, and some form of symbolic or uh, other value. Now, it'd be wrong to actually completely disparage the intangible value. In environmental terms, you might argue it's the most environmentally friendly form of value there is, because it doesn't require any rare materials to manufacture, and it, it emits absolutely no carbon. So in many ways, I, you know, I view intangible value as rather a good thing. But um, there tends to be a distinction that it's viewed that advertising creates a kind of weird, you know, artificial value that's somehow less, um, what, what, what would one say, less virtuous than the value that's created through more conventional forms of, of human labour. Ad Supremo Rory Sutherland brought up the subject of virtue. A suitable point then to turn to philosophy and politics and um, political philosophy. Rodney Barker is a political historian, Professor Emeritus at the London School of Economics and Political Science, and a rare creature these days on English soil, a one-time professor of rhetoric. Those skills of argument, once much admired and much taught. How necessary is it for our rulers to win over our hearts and minds by their powers of persuasion? Professor. So long as you're not governing entirely by the sword or by the gun, or by the cluster gun, and most obviously in, in democratic societies, uh, you need to carry the people, or at least a majority of the people, with you. And what's interesting is that even rulers who do not apparently rely on the consent of the people, nonetheless spend quite a lot of time creating an impression, as much, I think, for themselves as for everybody else, that what they're doing is reasonable, just, the will of God, the soul of the nation, or whatever. It's very rare to find any government in even the most oppressive circumstances saying, I'm ruling because I've got more guns. But if persuasion has always been the most necessary public act of the political process, how good at it were the giant orators of yesteryear? And were, 
words enough? We know the words that were attributed to Pericles, for instance, but we have no idea how they were addressed and the visual performance. Uh, we know that there's all the difference in the world between saying, he's quite intelligent and he's quite intelligent with a written text. That would be obscured. So even though we do have early recordings of, for instance, Gladstone in the 19th century, I mean, we know that but only from reports, written reports, that part of Gladstone's skill as a, as a rhetorician, uh, and he was certainly thought in his time and be, by his peers to be a great rhetorician, was physical. He made great use of his body. We're told he would almost sink to his knees at one point on the stage, wave his arms about. And of course, he had all the, all the skills and tricks of a rhetorician invoking all kinds of authorities for all kinds of dubious um, policies. It was Gladstone of whom Labouchere said that you, know, you would never play cards with Mr Gladstone because he would always have an ace up his sleeve and always be convinced that God had put it there. But if the British Empire and its Commonwealth last for a thousand years... Great speeches are part of our cultural awareness. This was their finest hour. Ask not! What your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Great men with good in their hearts, God on their side, aces up their sleeves. They've changed the course of history, haven't they? No, I think not. I think there have been speeches which have made changes possible or acceptable or justifiable, but it's not just the speech that did it. I, I think we would like to think that that was so. And that's a sort of James Stewart view of history. <laughs> that the ordinary inarticulate man stumbles onto the stage, says, shucks, I'm no good at public speaking, throws away a piece of paper and then transforms everything and everybody turns around. Now, certainly, it would be nice... Well, would it be nice if that were so? I'm not sure. We certainly like to think that it was so. And that's a recurring theme in, in, in fiction, in films. That's how it is in drama. That's how it is in Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. Friends, Romans and countrymen, let me remind you that one of Shakespeare's greatest persuasive speeches is given in a place where persuasion is the most quotidian expectation, a courtroom. But in a play that celebrates reversal of expectation as a persuasive device, it's given by a woman. The quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. It is twice blessed. It blesseth him that gives and him that takes. It is mightiest and the mightiest. It becomes the throned monarch better than his crown. Judicial advocacy, we're told, is the most potent form of rhetoric. Great causes, great arguments, great intellects, often all at great expense, of course. Joshua Rosenberg is presenter of Radio 4's Law in Action programme and legal correspondent of the Daily Telegraph. There are very few great advocates of the sort that we used to see on television and that people used to queue up outside the Old Bailey to see in the flesh. Fashions have changed and the sort of rhetoric that uh, one jury is over, has been replaced by a much calmer, softer, more conversational approach. We're no longer impressed by the theatricality of the barrister who will drop his handkerchief in order to capture the jury's attention, 
or who will use the, the high-blown rhetoric of Marshall Hall, the famous phrase he used to a, a jury a century ago when there was a prostitute in the dock. Look at her, gentlemen of the jury. God never gave her a chance, won't you? And uh, in 1907, uh, he was even bolder. He said, I do not merely ask for a verdict of not guilty, I demand it. Now, a, a lawyer demanding that sort of verdict from a jury these days would not get very far. It would be almost counterproductive. Today, a would-be Cicero or Clarence Darrow, even an aspirant Porsche or Perry Mason, has to decide just who it is that they are trying to convince, the judge or the jury. There's a great difference between a jury trial where you're trying to impress 12 members of the public and a civil case which is being heard by a judge sitting alone or maybe a panel of judges. Occasionally, a lawyer will forget which court he's in and will make what are called jury points to a single judge or a panel of judges, and they don't like it. They tell the lawyer, you know, that sort of rhetoric goes down with the jury, but what you need to give us is obviously persuasiveness. And the best advocates will make it appear so simple that there's really no other answer. There's no alternative way of doing it but the argument that the advocate is putting. Aha! There, members of the jury, I think we have arrived at the nub of the matter. As Melanie Trent has so ably pointed out, that is one of the great secrets to persuasion, making the target of your efforts think that what they're being offered is the only solution to their problem. And if you're really good, then maybe you can sell them a solution to a problem they didn't even know they had. And perhaps you should be in marketing. Liz Jackson is in marketing. She is managing director of Great Guns Marketing, who specialize in the field of telemarketing. What's the best way to start persuading people on the phone, Liz? The best way to approach people is to approach them in the way they'd like to be approached, and it's finding out that in the first instance. So, for example, um, IT directors don't really like talking to anybody ever because, you know, they spend most of their time watching Star Trek um, and unless you can call them in some sort of alien language and speak to them in that way, you know, you might struggle to get on their wavelength because they don't actually like engaging with a person so much. So, you know, a great way to approach them might be via something web-based, so a social media outlet or an email or, you know, some kind of viral campaign where they get to play a game and shoot aliens. You may think you're speaking to an alien yourself when you get someone on the other end of the phone who doesn't seem to understand what your problem is, almost willfully. And which of us hasn't encountered the ubiquitous call centre? They're impossible to avoid. Telemarketing is big business, which is largely aimed at approaching you, me, all of us, in a way designed to disarm us. Your communications can be a lot more targeted than they've ever been before. We've got so much more information on individuals than we've ever had. So we can make their communications that much more appealing and that much more bespoke to, to their particular needs. You can learn so much from people's Facebook profiles, for example. You know, it's the best way now if you're a consumer brand, you know, you've got so much information that you can gather from social media, where people are, what are their favourite brands, who they're friends with. All of that information can be gathered. But can someone equipped with the appropriate skills and information sell anything to anyone? 
no one's going to buy something from me unless I absolutely believe 100% that if they don't buy it, they're a complete idiot. You know, I have to have complete belief and conviction in what it is that I'm talking to my prospect about. And then they then they believe in it as well. So they don't necessarily have to have a need now. I have to uncover that. I have to, you know, itch them where they're scratching. Little taste for you, my love, where you come from. Thank you, young lady. That's what I like to see, the younger generation. Taste and try traditional Cumberland sausage. A little taste for you. What about that, then? This is Peter Gott. He's hard at work persuading people to buy what he makes, in this instance, sausages. Peter's no stranger to market trading. He's been doing it for some 40-odd years, currently in his native Cumbria and in London. He knows just what it takes to get people face-to-face to part with their cash. This is persuasion at the sharp end. The market is a stage, and I think when we're on duty, we have to perform. I'm sort of always engaging different people and trying to work out where they're from by their accents. Engagement becomes part of the art of persuasion. I think the art of market trading is humour. We have to see a smile. If we see a smile, a glimmer in the eye, then we've almost got it in the bag. If you were to say things like it fell off the back of a lorry, did it or didn't it? There's actually nothing wrong with suggesting that it might even be stolen because that would be a bargain. And when it's eaten, nobody will know, or maybe they don't miss it till Monday, so take it now. Or is it summer cheese? Some is paid for, some is not. Actually, I think we all like to have the bit of the rogue comes and says, well, I'll have one. Selling is big on the streets, and now in the groves of academe, too. There are untold numbers of marketing analysts involved in studying the nuts and bolts of humble commerce. Hugh Williams is Professor of Strategic Marketing at Cranfield School of Management. How do the professional analysts view a mere practitioner? Can the doctor teach someone to sell like Peter Gott does? There's absolutely no doubt that some of it can be taught, but equally, you can't teach attitude. At least if you can, no one's discovered how to do it. And so we asked Professor Hugh Williams to go along to Borough Market and watch Peter Gott on his market stall and analyse for us just how he persuades people so successfully to buy his products. The first thing you need is to establish your own credibility, which is a function of two things, really. Firstly, you need to establish your expertise. And secondly, you need to establish that you're trustworthy. Peter, I'm, I'm very interested in how you... You establish your expertise, and it's partly what you're wearing, isn't it? Because well, it's yeah, kind it, of professional without being intimidating. I hope so. I mean, it looks old-fashioned. I've got a bowler hat on, which is a brown derby. I've got an apron on, I've got a white coat on, uh, breeks on. It's eye-catching, but also that in itself hopefully gives me credibility because I must know what I'm talking about when I'm giving a sample or when I'm talking about a product. The other thing that's interesting to me is how you establish your trustworthiness. Because people might assume that you would say anything was great. And the other thing that helps trustworthiness generally is being likeable. And I hope you don't mind me saying, Peter, you're a very likeable chap. You must find that helps a bit. So you probably can't go to work in a grumpy mood if you're trying to sell. I think I do. Um, But no, it's it's the people person. It's It's interesting you say people person because that's exactly what some of our most successful firms do. They consciously recruit people people. I am an authority on what I'm speaking about. And I am confident that there are no questions that I couldn't answer to do with that product. So knowledge is an endowment of salesmanship. And that establishes your expertise. 
which is a proven driver of credibility and of, uh, and of persuasion. I want my customer to genuinely feel comfortable they're going to buy the best sausage, they're going to come back for it again. And another thing actually you do that helps establish your expertise is you wouldn't necessarily be aware of, but you speak very fluently. And if in doubt, you say the same thing again rather than leaving a gap. <laughs> and there have been experiments done. If you take someone's speech with some ums and ahs and pauses, if you edit them out and replay the message, it's more persuasive. I think market trading has given me that ability. And I think also in London, where you're not sure of which country people are coming from, you have to be quite specific with your P's and Q's, as it were. I did go down Petticoat Lane when I was 15 years old and saw people selling bed linen and towels. And I, I always believed that some of the guys who were out there on the shows who were actually demonstrating products, you know, if they don't speak, they'll never sell. And I, I am in awe of that ability to do a 10-minute spiel and sell a 150-pound <laughs> unit. I couldn't do it. But some of them are brilliant, and I really think that, that they're the master craftsmen at, um, at oratory work. And, you know, some of the best are very clear. So maybe I've taken a little bit from everywhere. There's a thing called the theory of planned behaviour, which suggests that there are three sorts of message that are important when you're selling. One is this issue of self-efficacy, which is helping me feel that I can do my bit. So in this case, it might be you explaining to the customer how to cook something, for example, to make me feel confident that, that I can kind of cope. The second area is simply explaining the benefits of something, which clearly you were, you were doing in terms, of, in terms of the sourcing of the sausages and so on, and the impact on, on the taste. The third is around something called subjective norms, which is an academic term, which is around the social pressure we feel from others. But I think there's a there's a greed element that we can't rule out. And the greed element is something that if you put six pieces of cheese on a board all the same and you begin a taste, your immediate reaction is there's a, there's a taste which gets you the attention. And, then, and these are the last six pieces. There's a greed element that says, I can't miss out on this. So at that point, Professor Wilson challenged Peter Gott to put his money, or at least his cheese, where his mouth was. Here, we go for an offer you couldn't refuse. There'll be the Lancashire cheese now. Thank you. That last three. Any one of them for a pound now. One of them, a little taste for you, sir. A pound, any one of them. Just try it, see what you think. Thank you, sir. At last, we got one away there. Hands on, two left, two left. Anybody else? Anybody else a little? Another one there, that's a nice lady, thank you very much. And the last one. Just to prove a point, the last one there for a pound, sir. Did you get a nibble? Oh, you've had it. Peter Gott's last question there, did you get a nibble, very nicely brings us to our next aspect of the subject under consideration. <laughs> Haven't we all, at some point, tried to get a nibble? Yes, the subtle art of seduction. better to give us the benefit of his experience than Peter Stringfellow, the man who, if his autobiography is to be believed, has been to bed with more women than... Can you talk someone into going to bed with you? To persuade anyone to do anything 
on an emotional level or certainly a sexual level is a bit of a fallacy. A person who is being persuaded knows either they're going to or they're not. The woman, believe me, knows if she's going to get involved with this guy at all. After that, it's a game she's playing and it's a game you have to enter as well. Find out where this lady is. If she's out of your league, leave her alone, you know. She's in a one film star and, and you're the, uh, and you're not. <laughs> and then leave it alone. <laughs> Women choose men way before you get near them to talk to them. They decide. Number one, you're smooth. Number two, you're, you're quite nicely groomed. You look all right. You have a, a sophistication about yourself. You're confident. This, in my opinion, is always appealing to women, whereas cockiness isn't. I think women see that. We know women like success, women like confidence, and women like affluence. I'm sorry, but it's the truth. You put those into a little mix, and out pops the man of their dreams. And if he happens to be good looking, or on somewhere near good looking, that's a bonus. And I think probably that's where I fit in. But isn't there a magic formula? If you can't pen a sonnet like John Donne, maybe you can come up with a killer chat-up line that will win a fair lady's or gentleman's heart, and you a tumble in the hay. No. <laughs> chat-up lines only work on naive girls. I mean, totally naive, um, ridiculously so. Chat-up lines belong to boys and girls and pubs and stuff, and any mature man who tries a chat-up line is, is embarrassing. However, the only one I've ever bothered using and that's always worked for me, is, hi, my name's Peter Stringfellow, I own the place. Hmm, thanks, I'll, uh, I'll try that. The old droit de seigneur may seem very persuasive, but might doesn't equal right, let's remember. There's a contradiction between the force of an argument and the argument which employs force. It's a dilemma, whether propaganda, for instance, is the pinnacle of the persuader's art, or a perversion of it. Here's Professor Rodney Barker again. The problem with propaganda is that one can judge it by several criteria. Propaganda, as opposed to presentation, I think must involve a degree of exaggeration. And exaggeration is moving in the direction of suppression of the truth, distortion of the truth, telling of lies. So in that sense, the very word propaganda has become a critical term. Oh, that's mere propaganda, we would say. A political party would probably not publicly say, um, we have to improve our propaganda. They would say, we have to explain things more clearly to people. Now, you said is propaganda the, the, the pinnacle of persuasive art. I don't think this is a paradox, but it, it can cause people difficulties and always does. That you can certainly look at um, statements, artistic creations, which are clearly propagandist but as art, are at a very high level indeed. You can make those two judgments, and we very often have to. And the better propaganda is as propaganda, um, the greater the possible chasm between our moral judgment of the message and our artistic judgment of the message. Whether it's government nudges, political party, multinational corporation slogans, or naked propaganda, cold calls on the telephone, or clever questions in court, we are all potential targets. Luckily, the sound of the silver tongue provokes a natural defence. 
there's a lot of suspicion of people who argue well. Those people up there, the Guardian readers, the chattering classes, people in London, them at the university, too clever by half. You know, it all sounds very good, but you've got to watch them. Notwithstanding the brand warning, I hope you might be persuaded to join me next time for another edition of Fry's English Delight. Go on. You know you want to. Of course we do. Next week, Stephen Fry looks at language and class. Fry's English Delight is presented by Stephen Fry. The producer was Ian Gardhouse, and it's a testbed production for BBC Radio 4. The voice of Portia from The Merchant of Venice was that of Anna Massey, who died earlier this month. Well, now it's time for Peter White to reveal his latest bugbear in Blind Man's Bet Noir. And this week, Peter has something of a surprise up his sleeve. This could be career suicide. Presenter of In Touch, Radio 4's long-running programme for visually impaired people, says one of his bet noir is... ..being introduced to other blind people. I suppose I'd better explain. It's because of incidents like this. Oh, Peter, how lovely to see you. There's a man over here you've just got to meet. You'll have so much in common. Oh, yeah? Is he in radio? Oh, no, I don't think so. Uh, he's a rabid Southampton football fan. 